quote Weisberg. See what Kennedy done? With Kennedy, a guy should take a knife like one of them other guys and stab and kill the motherfucker where he is now. Somebody should kill the motherfucker. I mean it. This is true, honest to God. It's about time to go, but I tell you something. I hope I get a week's notice. I'll kill. Right in the motherfucking White House. Somebody's got to get rid of this asshole. End quote. The legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society. They're stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast, hosted by history buff and mob aficionado, Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Members Only Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a mob enthusiast and historian. In today's episode, which will be a little different than the typical biographical content, I'm going to wade into the controversial waters of one of the darkest days in American history, that being the Kennedy assassination. We're going to do our best to to really shy away from the more broad conspiracy theories, but dig deep into what many mobsters around the country were picked up saying about the Kennedys and the FBI, both before and after the assassination, much of which is not commonly known because it's been buried in old government documents since the late 1970s. For those familiar with the mob genre, some of the comments that I'll bring up are well known, and we'll certainly talk about those, but the bulk of the episode will focus on comments that even hardcore mob enthusiasts have probably never heard pretty much before, uh, and I know I had not heard them before. This episode is also a little bit timely, as there was an article just released on May 27th, 2023, by the New York Post claiming the feds, and I I think we knew this, have long hidden film that could prove the grassy knoll conspiracy, the implication, of course, being that this would prove that there was indeed a second shooter. So even 60 years after the fact, this topic is still quite riveting to the public. But before we get into the episode, I'd like to remind you, hit that subscribe button and turn on the bell to get notifications. If you're already a subscriber, please share the show to help my small but mighty mafia channel grow. If you're listening to the audio only version, please leave a review and let me know what you think. All right, time to get our hands dirty, so to speak, with a little Kennedy related mafia talk. So I'll admit I had no grand plans to do a Kennedy episode. I was not really looking for it. And just like a few of my other episodes, the background of where this episode came from was a result of doing research for something else, something completely different. That something else, of course, was the research for my recent episode on the rise of Angelo Bruno. During the course of that research, I happened to stumble across an amazing government report that went very, very deep into the organized crime connections to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, among other things. While I won't be getting too far into the actual assassination of Kennedy and the various conspiracy theories which are sure to rile people up, I do plan to shed light on some wiretapped conversations that were happening between mobsters in the early 1960s preceding JFK's death and in the immediate aftermath of his assassination. Now, for those of you that were alive in 1979 and maybe old enough to follow these hearings entitled the House Select Committee on Assassinations Investigation of the Assassination of President John F. Kennedy, that's a mouthful, you may remember 
that they were a more serious look at the assassination and the alleged ties between organized crime and the murder of the 35th president. Not that the other investigations weren't serious, but I think everybody can agree that the conclusions were faulty at best. For those like myself who weren't born or were too young to remember, this committee in 1978 and 1979 was the third major governmental effort to dig deeper into the assassination and was geared towards fact-checking the conclusions of the Warren Commission, which was a highly, highly criticized review and report from 1963 and 1964, as well as the Church Committee in 1975 and 1976, which immediately followed the Watergate scandal and was the report that helped uncover the ties relating to the CIA's recruitment of the mafia to assassinate none other than Fidel Castro. So by its very nature, there's a lot of intrigue here. Now, and this is really as deep as I'm gonna go into the actual assassination, but among the many conclusions of the 1964 Warren Commission report were, Number one, the shots which killed President Kennedy and wounded Governor Conley were fired from the sixth floor window at the southeast corner of the Texas School Book Depository. Number two, President Kennedy was first struck by a bullet which entered at the back of his neck and exited through the lower front portion of his neck, causing a wound which would not necessarily have been lethal by itself. The president was then struck by a second bullet, which entered the right rear portion of his head, causing a massive and fatal wound. Number three, Governor Conley was struck by a bullet, which entered on the right side of his back and traveled downward through the right side of his chest, exiting below his right nipple. This bullet then passed through his right wrist and entered his left thigh where it caused a superficial wound, and I believe that this theory is actually the magic bullet theory. Number four, there is no credible evidence that the shots were fired from the triple underpass ahead of the motorcade or from any other location, and I think that this is the, the part that is most heavily scrutinized. Number five, the weight of the evidence indicates that there were three shots fired. So two shots that, that hit Kennedy and one shot, I believe, that hit Conley or somebody else or missed. Number six, the shots which killed President Kennedy and wounded Governor Conley were fired by Lee Harvey Oswald. Number seven, Jack Ruby, a known associate of both the Chicago and Dallas Mafia families, entered the basement of the Dallas Police Department and killed Lee Harvey Oswald. That was caught on national TV. However, the report stated they believed there was no evidence to support the rumor that Ruby may have been assisted by any members of the Dallas Police Department. And if you believe that, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. Number eight, the commission has found no evidence that either Lee Harvey Oswald or Jack Ruby was part of any conspiracy, domestic or foreign, to assassinate President Kennedy. Again, I've got a bridge in Brooklyn to sell you. Number nine, the commission has found no evidence of conspiracy, subversion, or disloyalty to the U.S. government by any federal, state, or local official. Again, bridge in Brooklyn. You see where I'm going here? Number 10, the commission could not make any definitive determination of Oswald's motives. Now, like I said, I am not going to get into all the conspiracy theories, though I'm happy to talk about them in the comments uh, on the YouTube video related to the assassination, but I will generally say that I 100% agree with the House Select Committee's findings in 1978 and 1979 that Oswald and an unknown assailant killed Kennedy and that the killing was probably as a result of a conspiracy. I believe that there is a fair amount of evidence that supports this, including audio and, and video evidence. But again, that's just me. And in the 1978-1979 report, you will see several prominent mobsters not really being shy about their various thoughts and feelings with respect to the Kennedys, who they largely viewed as having betrayed the very organization that helped to get them elected in the first place after agreeing to help swing votes at the request of the father, scumbag, Joe Kennedy. And of course, for those that aren't aware of how things got there, let me give a quick overview. In the run-up to the 1960 election, Joe Kennedy had swung a backroom deal with the mob, most prominently the Chicago Outfit. Uh, and, and if you want to do research, go look at the voting records for Cicero, and this will prove 
that the mob probably had something to do with it because it was the closest election in American history. And Cicero was probably the key. Cicero is suburb of Chicago was probably the key district in the entire country in terms of swinging the votes had previously voted entirely Republican and for this election voted almost entirely Democrat record turnout. And uh, so Kennedy had swung a backroom deal with the mob in return for helping to get his son, John F. Kennedy, elected, whereby Joe Kennedy allegedly promised to curb the activities of his son, Bobby, who in the late 1950s had been more than a thorn in the side of the mob, uh, just a complete, complete thorn in their side. In addition to, to curbing Bobby's activities, he supposedly promised other favorable concessions to make life easier for the mafia, and many now believe that he made promises that either he never really intended to keep or couldn't keep. However, as we know now, once in office, JFK appointed his brother to the post of attorney general, and Bobby Kennedy essentially went apeshit. He went after the mob full force with arrests increasing something like several hundred percent, eight or nine hundred percent or something ridiculous, which we'll get into in a minute, thus breaking, effectively breaking the promises of his father, Joe Kennedy, and incurring the enmity of many powerful mobsters around the country. Here was what I thought was a very good synopsis on where the government, and specifically the Kennedy brothers, stood publicly in around 1960 with respect to organized crime. Quote, By 1960, the FBI had accumulated substantial knowledge about Italian organized criminal groups. For example, it obtained the first evidence that these groups were nationally directed as one organization. This information came from electronic surveillance of Sam Giancana, head of the Chicago family. Giancana was heard to say that the Appalachian meeting had been a gathering of something called the Commission. He indicated that he himself was a member and he named others identifiable as crime leaders from New York, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and New England, who had also been at Appalachian. The FBI noted CHT-1 advised in September 1959 of the existence of a small group of persons representing criminal groups in various sections of the United States and referred to as the Commission. T-numbers are assigned to confidential sources. CHT-1 then is a principal source for the Chicago Field Division of the FBI. Other early information gathered as part of the Top Hoodlum program was... NYT-12 advised on December 1959 of a right of membership in said criminal organization. Nevertheless, the FBI did not make organized crime a top priority until the Kennedy administration arrived in Washington. A. La Cosa Nostra and the Kennedy administration. President Kennedy's direct involvement in the effort to combat organized crime dated back, as noted earlier, to his participation in the McClellan Committee labor racketeering investigation. With the advent of his administration, organized crime investigations were assigned a high priority. Kennedy had named his brother as attorney general, and Robert Kennedy was equally interested in breaking up organized crime. His concern, too, dated back to the McClellan Committee. As a first step, Robert Kennedy dramatically expanded the number of attorneys in the organized crime and racketeering section of the criminal division of the Justice Department and made clear to the FBI that organized crime was to be a high priority. The category within which these investigations were carried at justice was shown in FBI files to be AR, or anti-racketeering. He also put together a list of 40 organized crime figures who were to be targeted for investigation. This was soon followed by a second list of 40. The Attorney General quickly requested new legislation to improve the department's ability to attack organized crime. B. Intelligence Operations a major focus of the new effort at justice was intelligence gathering. The Top Hoodlum program was expanded and became the Criminal Intelligence Program. Records indicated the creation of file number 92-6054 at FBI headquarters, evidence of the increased attention being paid the Mafia. 
originally called the Criminal Commission et al. It was renamed La Cosa Nostra. Special agents were directed to obtain intelligence concerning the existence of a national crime organization. The FBI soon began to employ widely the intelligence-gathering techniques that had long been used in domestic security and counterintelligence operations to wit physical surveillance, electronic surveillance, and confidential informants. The FBI also began to develop a strategy that would correspond to the nature of the criminal organization it was facing. An agent was assigned at all times to each targeted crime figure a one-on-one -on -one coverage that was a luxury beyond the resources of local police departments, even those concerned about organized crime. Special agents were to work under a coordinator who would supervise activities directed at criminals known to be associated with each other. As a national agency, the FBI was also able to coordinate intelligence gathered throughout the United States and incorporated into a complete national picture, end quote. The report would go on to notate the successes of RFK's strategy, which is going to provide the impetus for this episode. Quote, see a successful operation. The FBI's intelligence operation against organized crime must be characterized as a success. In a comparatively short time, live sources were being noted in field office reports, some identified as members of the criminal organization under investigation. Important crime figures in leadership positions had also become unwitting informants as their conversations about the associations and activities of their peers were monitored by electronic surveillance bugs in many parts of the United States. This information was supplemented by the results of more traditional investigations. The FBI established liaison with reliable local law enforcement officials with whom joint operations, exchanges of information, and other cooperative efforts were affected. End quote. It should be pointed out that these wiretaps were at the time very, very illegal, but it still gave the FBI a way to quickly get up to speed after years of having the mafia languishing as a lower priority behind communism and other priorities under the leadership of one J. Edgar Hoover. It should also be noted that Hoover and the Kennedys were alleged to have absolutely hated each other. I think that's pretty well known. But at this point in time, he, Hoover, really had no choice but to get on board or else. Bobby pretty much put him in his place temporarily. Now, according to the report, the results of the Kennedy program were pretty clear. And the mobsters, believe me when I say they were not happy. Between 1960, prior to the Kennedy administration, and 1963, there was a 250% increase in the number of attorneys from 17 to 60. More than a 900% increase in days in the field from the agents from 660 to 6,172, a 1,250% increase in days in grand jury from 100 to 1,353, a 1,700% increase in days in court from 61 to 1,081, and from 1961 to 1963, there was a 500% increase in defendants indicted from 121 to 615, a 400% increase in defendants convicted from 73 to 288. Now, on one hand, if you're looking objectively, you really do have to commend Bobby Kennedy's law enforcement strategies, which when you consider the fact that he was not really qualified uh, per se to be in the position he was in, he kind of got it because of who his father and brother were, somewhat revolutionized the standard operating procedures on how to combat an organization as deeply rooted as the American mafia was at that time. Though a lot of RFK's work would cease after the assassination of his brother and the mafia would receive sort of a stay of execution in which it would extend its golden age well into the 1980s, it did set the stage for future law enforcement ventures and seriously challenge the mafia's national dominance for really the first time since Thomas Dewey had done so in the 1930s. Now, the flip side of that equation is that JFK and RFK had broken the promise made by their father, and in doing so, pretty much created mortal enemies, not just within the mafia, but even inside their own government. 
the full court press that they launched would step on so many toes and would, in my opinion, ultimately lead to the plot that would end the life of John F. Kennedy in 1963 and also probably would result in the assassination of Robert Kennedy in 1968. That plot was probably uh, intrinsically tied to this one. But again, that's a conspiracy for another day. By the way, if you're looking for a highly detailed background on just who the Kennedys were, I highly recommend you go over to my recent guest, Jeff Canarsi's paid platform, Mob Talk Radio, and listen to his recent series on the Kennedy crime family, as he calls them. Jeff takes you all the way through the roots of the family, going all the way back to Joe Kennedy's father, PJ Kennedy, and brings you through all the dastardly deeds, all the way up to the circumstances of the assassination. It's one of the most detailed podcasts on the subject that I have personally heard. So I recommend you go over there and try it out. And I'm not just saying that because Jeff was a recent guest. It's truly, really, really amazing work on his part. Now, what I think you're going to see pretty clearly is that the mafia had the means and the motive at the time to play a part in the assassination. Again, I'm not going to go so far as to say they were the ones who did it. I think there's a lot of people on many sides of the fence and a lot of potential players in the game, so to speak, as I believe the Kennedys by that point had many enemies, and I've heard rumors of involvement from other governmental agencies, most specifically the CIA. However, when I share some of these stories with you, many of which are among the lesser known comments and not the more famous we killed the wrong Kennedy comments, I think you'll agree that at a minimum, they weren't happy, but more likely than not, they had murder on their mind, whether they played a part or not. And ultimately, we'll never know who did it, but it is fun to take a look back into history and play armchair quarterback, so to speak. Okay, so I'm about to share excerpts from the report, and I can promise you it's a treasure trove of colorful commentary, plots, and intrigue, and I highly recommend it if you have the time to read it and you're a glutton for what others might consider to be somewhat boring reading material, I'll be sure to link to it in the sources on my website. Go go give the, the report a read. It's, it's very interesting at the least. Of course, for those in the mob genre, the comments coming from the likes of Santo Traficante Jr. and Carlos Marcello, who has the distinction of actually being kidnapped and dropped in Guatemala by federal agents at the order of Bobby Kennedy, are a little more well-known, and we will cover those. For those that aren't familiar, I'll share probably the most commonly known story which pertains to Carlos Marcello, the boss of New Orleans. Now, according to a man named Ed Becker, in 1963, Marcello allegedly issued a very serious threat regarding the Kennedy brothers. The 1978-1979 Senate report contained the following with respect to Becker and Marcello, much of which is, is like I said, a more well-known story. Quote, Becker stated that he and Rapolo met with Marcello on three or four occasions in connection with the proposed business deal and that Marcello made his comments about President Kennedy during the first or second meeting. The meetings transpired between sometime in September 1962 and roughly January 1963. Only the three of them had been present during two or three of the meetings, but a Marcello aide named Laverde, a barber, had also been present once. Becker stated that Marcello had made his remarks about the Kennedy brothers after Becker said something to the effect that Bobby Kennedy is really giving you a tough time. He could not recall the exact words Marcello used in threatening President Kennedy, but believed the account in Reed's book is basically accurate. Marcello was very angry and had clearly stated that he was going to arrange to have President Kennedy murdered in some way. Marcello's statement had been made in a serious tone and sounded as if he had discussed it previously to some extent. Becker commented that Marcello had made some kind of reference to President Kennedy's being a dog and Attorney General Robert Kennedy the dog's tail and had said the dog will keep biting you if you only cut off its tail, but that if the dog's head were cut off, the dog would die. 
Becker stated that Marcello also made some kind of reference to the way in which he allegedly wanted to arrange the president's murder. Marcello clearly indicated that his own lieutenants must not be identified as the assassins and that there would be a necessity to have them use or manipulate someone else to carry out the actual crime. Becker said that Marcello's alleged remarks about assassinating the president lasted only a few minutes during the course of the meeting, which went one to two hours. Marcello had spoken in Sicilian phrases during parts of the meeting and had grown very angry at one point in the discussion of their proposed business deal. Becker said that although he and Rapolo met with Marcello on two or three more occasions following this meeting, they never again discussed President Kennedy. Becker added that the oil additive business deal never came to fruition. Becker told the committee that while he believed Marcello had been serious when he spoke of wanting to have the president assassinated, he did not believe the mafia leader was capable of carrying it out or had the opportunity to do so. He emphasized that while he was disturbed by Marcello's comments at the time, he had grown accustomed to hearing criminal figures make threats against adversaries. End quote. To, to bolster this story, in fact, according to a 2013 New York Post article on December 15, 1985, Marcello allegedly confessed to a fellow inmate who happened to be an informant for the FBI while serving time on federal charges in Texarkana. According to an FBI memo released in 2006, he said this about JFK. Quote, yeah, I had the son of a bitch killed. I'm glad I did. I'm sorry I couldn't have done it myself. End quote. And of course, there is also Santo Traficante Jr., the Don of Tampa, Florida, who has also been long rumored to have played a part in the planning of the Kennedy assassination. According to reports, Traficante told a close friend, a man named Jose Ailman, the following. Quote, Mark my word, this man Kennedy is in trouble, and he will get what is coming to him. Kennedy's not going to make it to the election. He's going to be hit. End quote. And of course, there are the well-known ties to one James Riddle Hoffa, who had a very personal, and I mean personal, ongoing feud with Bobby Kennedy for years. On January 14th, 1992, the New York Post article, which has since been removed, had could not could not find it, but found many references to it, claimed that Traficante, Jimmy Hoffa, and Carlos Marcello had all been involved in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Frank Regano, who had been a longtime lawyer to Traficante, Hoffa, and others, was quoted as saying that at the beginning of 1963, Hoffa had told him to take a message to Traficante and Marcello concerning the plan to kill Kennedy. When the meeting took place at the Royal Orleans Hotel, Regano told the men the following. Quote, you won't believe what Hoffa wants me to tell you. Jimmy wants you to kill the president. End quote. He reported that both men gave the impression that they intended to carry out this order. In his autobiography, Mob Lawyer, released in 1994 and co-written by famed mafia author Selwyn Robb, Frank Regano added that in July of 1963, he was once again sent to New Orleans by Hoffa to meet Traficante and Carlos Marcello concerning plans to kill President John F. Kennedy. When Kennedy was killed, Hoffa apparently said the following to Regano. Quote, I told you that they could do it. I'll never forget what Carlos and Santos did for me. This means Bobby is out as attorney general. End quote. Marcello later told Regano, quote, When you see Jimmy, you tell him he owes me and he owes me big. End quote. Also, according to Regano, Traficante, shortly before his death in 1987, admitted his involvement in the conspiracy allegedly while Regano had been driving the mob boss around Tampa. According to Regano, Traficante said the following, which I've translated from Sicilian to English. Quote, Carlos messed up. We shouldn't have killed Giovanni. We should have killed Bobby. End quote. And as you might expect, Regano claimed to have been shocked by the admission, as anyone would be, 
That said, and I do want to point this out about both Becker and Regano, there have been many, many people over the years who've claimed that this story or these stories were all made up. And I'm not necessarily to here to pick one side or the other. I'm more or less relaying these more common stories so that listeners who maybe aren't as familiar can have somewhat of a, a basis of understanding and a picture painted for them of what's been commonly said in the genre before. And you have to admit that whether these things that, that have been said by Becker and Regano are true or not, they're they're freaking explosive to to be sure. But whether the stories are true has always been very hard to say, as Becker, Regano, and others have had many people, like I said, who question their motives and claim their information was self-serving and unreliable. I mean, Regano was trying to sell a book, so of course, every book sells more when the stories are more salacious. Personally, these stories and the wording used seems like it would be hard, in my opinion, to just make up. But like I said, I'm not going to attempt to discern any of that here or now. Now, for the rest of the episode, my focus is going to be on some of the lesser known comments that were picked up by the FBI illegally and subsequently reported in the 1978-1979 hearings. Now, I'm just going to say, if you're listening to this with your kids, earmuffs, or don't listen to it in front of them, a little bit of parenting advice, hearkening back to my last episode. But there are quite a few obscenities scattered throughout the report that have simply been marked as an obscenity without actually saying what the words were. So I'm just letting you know that I'm going to try and guess the right curse word. We're playing the game Guess the Right Curse Word for the particular quote that may or may not be what the mobster said, but I think I'm pretty good at guessing which curse word they may have been using. So we'll start with none other than Sam Giancana, front boss in Chicago. In February of 1963, a decision was made to replace First Ward City Alderman John DiArco, who at some point had displeased one Tony Accardo. Not someone you want mad at you. The first choice to replace him was a man named Anthony DeTolve, but Giancana ultimately decided instead to back a man named Michael Fiorito. This decision involved a minor difficulty as DeTolve had already been officially designated as his party's choice, and it was far too late to change that selection on the official ballot. As a result, Giancana decided to run Fiorito as an independent write-in candidate for city alderman. So, a long shot, unless you're the mob. Giancana was strongly committed to getting Fiorito elected, and the outfit turned out the vote, resulting in Fiorito, a late-riding candidate for city alderman, somehow winning by a large majority. On February 28, 1963, Sam Giancana, pleased, as you can imagine, with the outcome, was heard to say the following regarding his arch-nemesis, Bobby Kennedy. Quote, that will teach that little fuck Kennedy who runs Chicago, end quote. Now, ultimately, the media would be highly critical of the election, as you can imagine, leading to Fiorito's resignation just three months, three months later in May of 1963. So that's a little bit of mud on Giancana's face. And Giancana would be left looking somewhat foolish, as you can imagine, as the first ward city alderman position would remain vacant until the next regular election the following year. Now, our next example doesn't mention the Kennedys directly, but it really goes to show how effective the efforts by RFK to amp up the intelligence gathering were. In June of 1963, Stefano Magadino, leader of the mob in Buffalo, New York, and member of the commission, was heard to say the following. Quote, They know everybody's name. They know who's boss. They know who is on the commission. They know Amico Nostra, the password, our friend. They said to me, what was your capo regime doing here? What did he come to tell you? They knew that 11, 12, 13 was massaged. To Carlo Gambino, they said, this is your underboss, this is your capo regime, this is your consigliere, end quote. To continue with Magadino, he was captured yet again in June of 1963, talking to Anthony DiStefano, an underling from Syracuse. 
quote, you see the Cosa Nostra the other day, they made me become frightened. They know our business better than us. They know the heads of the families, the Capo de China, the FBI does. Therefore, that's why the other day I say, be careful before you open your mouth, because sometimes somebody could be a spy and you might think he is an amico nostro. End quote. Now, of course, it's ironic that he's saying don't open your mouth as he's being recorded. But this was at a time when the mafia, despite being a secret society, wasn't used to having to be so secretive or didn't realize truly how far law enforcement had really come with respect to catching up with the organization, which again is ironic as they're discussing how far law enforcement has indeed come. <laughs> To continue along those same lines, the report goes on to cite two unnamed Brooklyn hoods discussing the improvements in police intelligence work and the increase in coordination from all law enforcement entities in general. Quote, they know a lot. They know everything. They put everything together. Lots of things where we take it for granted. It don't mean nothing. These people have been gathering and gathering. They go here. They go there. See, before it was a different story. If you had the locals, they knew the information, but they kept it for themselves. Today, they are all working together. We got a big problem. These people are united. Everything they collect, they concentrate. And now everything goes into one office. Before, every squad kept the information for themselves. You take this cop on the corner. You've been paying him for 20 years, maybe. They get the information. Someone comes in from New York and asks if he knows so-and-so. Oh, he's a bookmaker. And you've been paying him for 20 years. That's the condition you got today. End quote. From the late 1950s to the early 1960s, federal and state law enforcement had made light years worth of progress, and I mean light years, and now firmly understood much about Cosa Nostra's structure, membership, and its methods of operation. As the two hoodlums said, they had a big problem. Also around April and May of 1963, there were signs that the increased pressure was beginning to take a toll on some members of the organization. In April 1963, the father of Gambino capo Carmine Lombardazzi passed away. During the wake and funeral, the FBI conducted surveillance, and as the funeral procession entered the church, several young men assaulted an FBI agent, took his service revolver, and then fled. Now, of course, due to the edict against harming members of law enforcement, this incident was fairly singular in nature, but in a relatively short period of time, it was being discussed by members of the Gambino family, Philadelphia, and even Western New York. Next, you have the following and somewhat winding discussion between wise guys named Mike and Pete, which took place in May of 1963. The chat shows the growing concern about the FBI's actions in response to the attack on their agent. Now, the Mike and Pete in this story were Mike Scandifia, an acting capo in the Gambino family, and Peter Pumps Ferrara, a capo also in the Gambino family, whose daughter is a Catholic nun, which is also pertinent to the story. So, fun, fun fact there. Quote, Mike, he was told specifically, Pete. To come and see me? Mike, you're a captain. No, they don't want to come to you to embarrass you and your daughter. Pete, who did they tell that to? Mike, they told that to Freddie. Pete, yeah. Mike, they don't want to embarrass you. Three of them called to him. They said, we don't want to go to Petey Pumps. We don't want to embarrass him with his daughter. Pete, they already did. Mike, they already went to you this week. This is the bullshit. Pete, yeah. Mike, they don't want to give you no. Uh, in other words, they are telling you that they don't want to embarrass you. In other words, they won't go to the convent. Well, I would say right now they are giving you the zing. You want us to go to the convent? You want us to embarrass you? Well then, see that the right thing is done. Pete, yeah. Mike. Actually, what it boils down to, they're looking to use a stick. But now we'll go on the midnight raids. We'll do this. We'll do that. We'll do the other thing. You're a captain. You belong to Carl's family. Pete. 
Well, previous to that, he hands me Carlo's picture. You know him? I said, sure, I know him. How long you know him? I know him 20, 30 years. Mike, they didn't expect you to say nothing. Pete, can you tell us anything about him? The only thing I could tell you about him is that he is a businessman, been in business all his life, brought up four kids, they had a good education, they're all in business, they all went to college and married a profession. I said, what else could you ask for? He's got a nice family. See what they do? They want to get a message through. I mean, get a message through someplace. There's no question about it. Mike, they want to put the heat on you, me. Pete, yeah. Mike, because here's the proof of it. They've gone to every captain. Pete, and they call them captains. One guy said foreman. The other guy said capo regina. I mean, they're going right to each head. To the head of everybody they're going to. But for them to say this when he told me this, I said, Jimmy, I think he already saw them. Pete, yeah. Mike, I think he already saw them, I said. Now to put the heat on him to go to his daughter, I said, this don't make sense to me. I said, where the fuck does this come into the picture? Now they don't want to embarrass you? Pete, what are they going to embarrass me for? What can they do? Go up there? Mike, well, God forbid. They can't. They can't throw her out. Pete, no. Mike, they couldn't throw Albert's brother out. How are they going to throw her out? Pete, nah, they can't throw her out. Mike, embarrassment that your daughter is a nun. I mean, Jesus Christ, it's supposed to be an honor. Pete, they can't do nothing. They won't do nothing. Mike, dirty cocksuckers. Now that they bring out everything, Pete, the Cosa Nostra is a wide-open thing. Pete, yeah, Mike, it's an open book. Pete, it's an open book. Mike, Pete, you know as well as I do, familiarity with anything whatsoever breeds contempt. We've had nothing but familiarity with Cosa Nostra. If it bring up sides, what the hell are we supposed to do? I only know one thing, Pete. The Cosa Nostra is the Cosa Nostra. You just do what the fucking bosses tell you. End quote. It's worth noting, because the wheel always turns in the Mafia, that Mike Scandafia would go missing on Thursday, December 4th, 1968. His body was never found, though in 2017, authorities exhumed a body buried in a small upstate cemetery that they believed to be that of Scandafia, uh, they dug it up because they believe the remains may have contained evidence and there were uh, essentially hopes to match the DNA with that of a relative. Now, I followed the, the, the trail and I couldn't confirm if they actually did match that DNA, but it just goes to show the wheel is always turning. To put the final point of emphasis on how the advancements in law enforcement were being felt up and down every organization, there was another conversation in May of 1963 that involved Angelo Bruno, the boss of Philadelphia, Peter and Salvatore Maggio, lieutenants to Bruno, Joe Magliocco, longtime underboss to Joe Profaci, and Sal Profaci, son of Joe Profaci. So the, the mafia hive was buzzing quite a bit at this time. At the meeting of these five men, it was discussed that Magliocco was having a difficult time obtaining the commission's approval for him to succeed Perfacci, who had just died in 1962 as his successor. He was attempting to gain Bruno's vote on the commission. During the meeting, Bruno described FBI tactics used on Carlo Gambino. He noted that the agents had named all Gambino's capos, named Joe Biondo as underboss, Joseph Riccobono as family counselor, and said, These are your amici nostri. You are the representante. You are the boss. The agent was reported to have then asked, Quote, Did you change the laws in your family that you could hit FBI men, punch and kick them? Well, this is the test that if you change the laws and now you are going to hit FBI men, every time we pick up one of your people, we are going to break their heads for them. End quote. Bruno then related that they had in fact picked up and badly, badly assaulted at least one associate. Quote, they almost killed him, the FBI. They don't do that, you know, but they picked up one of his fellows and they crippled him. 
They said, this is an example. Now, the next time anybody lays a hand on an FBI man, that's just a warning. There is nothing else we got to tell you, end quote. So it was clear the battle lines were being drawn, and it was a fight to the death, in my opinion. The Kennedys and the Mafia were essentially at war with one another. Now, for an organization that had largely spent the last 30 years well insulated, this increase in law enforcement pressure and the amount of detail and accuracy was a shock to the system that worried the entire Cosa Nostra. Going back to our good friend Sam Giancana, who was of course a mortal enemy by this point of the Kennedy brothers. By the spring of 1963, he had become the subject of an intense, and I mean intense, coverage plan to the point where agents were literally on him 24 hours a day, bumper to bumper, while he was on the golf course, in a restaurant, or as legend has it, even when he was in the men's room taking a leak, they were on him. During the first week of July 1963, the FBI interviewed a man named Charles Chucky English, a close Giancana associate and racketeer in his own right at his request. The interview took place at the Armory Lounge, and supposedly Giancana was present, but in another part of the establishment. As the story goes, towards the end, English tried to get Giancana, for whatever reason, to speak to the agents, but Giancana refused. Finally, as the agents were preparing to depart in their car, English came out with the following message from Giancana. Quote, If Bobby Kennedy wants to talk to me, I'll be glad to talk to him, and he knows who to go through. End quote. And of course, that is a reference to none other than Frank Sinatra, who had a relationship with both Giancana and the Kennedy family, and who often served as the liaison for communications and even stumped for Kennedy in the 1960 election. As you might expect, the fact that English submitted to this interview and indirectly mentioned the Sinatra relationship greatly upset Chicago's leadership, and with the combination of Giancana's absenteeism and bad publicity, they were seriously considering replacing him with some speculation of Accardo's protege, Jackie Cerrone, taking over day-to-day -day activities. And like I said, because the wheel's always turning, Chucky English would be killed on February 14th, 1985, St. Valentine's Day, very famous date in Chicago, when he was shot between the eyes as he walked to his Cadillac after dining alone at a suburban Chicago restaurant frequented by senior crime figures. His assailants, two men wearing ski masks, escaped. Now, jumping ahead in the timeline, and we'll be doing that a bit, on October 24th, 1963, in Miami, Florida, mere weeks before the assassination of JFK, a woman named Madeline Costello, wife of Charles Pinky Costello, a mob figure out of Philadelphia, was overheard speaking to an unidentified man about her husband's boss, Angelo Bruno. Quote, Madeline, I'll tell you, the things they are doing to that man are awful, just terrible unknown male. They are crucifying him. Madeline, and for what? It's all a political thing, you know. End quote. The conversation then turned to the 1963 Senate hearings on organized crime, more commonly referred to as the Valachi hearings. They could be heard laughing at how ridiculous they believed the Senate hearings to be, imitating the senators and making fun of Valachi's kiss of death, going on to claim that Valachi had never laid eyes on Bruno, yet somehow knew who he was. Quote, unknown male. The hearing is all political, instigated by Robert Kennedy. They're murdering the Italian name. End quote. Bruno, at the time of this conversation, was awaiting indictment for IRS violations and thus under so much pressure that he was allegedly considering following his predecessor, Joe Ida, to Italy permanently. Speaking of Bruno, and jumping backwards again in our timeline, on February 9th, 1962, Angelo Bruno and a man named Willie Weisberg, a business associate of Bruno's and a reputed leader within Philadelphia's Jewish mob, who was indeed listed among RFK's uh, 40 top echelon American racketeers, were caught openly complaining about the FBI and the Kennedys. The conversation, as you're about to hear, turned dark very, very quickly. Quote, Weisberg, see what Kennedy done? 
With Kennedy, a guy should take a knife like one of them other guys and stab and kill the motherfucker where he is now. Somebody should kill the motherfucker. I mean it. This is true, honest to God. It's about time to go, but I tell you something. I hope I get a week's notice. I'll kill. Right in the motherfucking White House. Somebody's got to get rid of this asshole. End quote. In probably what was my favorite excerpt from this entire episode, rather than responding directly to Weisberg's more blatant threats, Bruno instead waxed philosophical and told a story. The story was supposedly an old Italian wise tale, and honestly, it's actually a little chilling. It has that, that effect coming from Bruno. Quote, Bruno, look, Willie, do you see there was a king? Do you understand? And he found out that everybody was saying that he was a bad king. This is an old Italian story. So there was an old wise woman about 140 years old. So he figured, let me go and talk to the old wise woman. She knows everything. So he went to the old wise woman. So he says to her, I came here because I want your opinion. He says, do you think I'm a bad king? She says, no, I think you're a good king. He says, well, how come everybody says I'm a bad king? She says, because they are stupid. They don't know. He says, well, how come? Why do you say I'm a good king? Well, she said, I knew your great-grandfather. He was a bad king. I knew your grandfather. He was worse. I knew your father. He was worse than them. You, you are worse than all of them. But your son, if you die, your son is going to be worse than you. So it's better to be with you. So Brownwell, former attorney general, was bad. He was no fucking good. He was this and he was that. Weisberg, do you know what this man is going to do? He ain't going to leave nobody alone. Bruno, I know he ain't. But you see, everybody in there was bad. The other guy was good because the other guy was worse. Do you understand? Brownwell came. He was no good. He was worse than the guy before. Weisberg, not like this one. Bruno, not like this one. This one is worse, right? If something happens to this guy... Weisberg, let me tell you something. The FBI always hated the IRS. Always. The IRS never checked with the Treasury men. They went their separate ways. They wouldn't give each other information. They wanted to credit themselves. He made it with local authorities. He made it ring around the rosy, pal. Bruno, oh yeah, the guy is an accountant, see? So now he had to do something worse. So what? He started to think, what can I do more than the other guy? The other guy made the anti-racketeering law, gambling laws. He did this and he did that. What can I do? He says, I know what I can do. Anybody that has a record that is police property, when he gets pinched, no bail. Bruno then compares the Italian process of not allowing bail and incarcerating individuals until proven innocent. Weisberg, it's still America, though. Bruno, so it's still America. They're trying to pass a federal law that you can't take the fifth. When they grant you immunity, you can't take the fifth. Weisberg, they are not going to pass that law. Bruno, but they might. End quote. And of course, in 1972, in a case entitled Castigar versus United States, they did indeed rule that the government can overcome a claim of Fifth Amendment privilege by granting a witness use and derivative use immunity in exchange for his or her testimony. And alas, the complaints from members of Cosa Nostra would go on. Again, playing with the timeline, on February 17, 1962, Bruno had a conversation with Mario and Peter Maggio, in which one of the Maggios was reputed to have said, quote, Maggio, Kennedy is going to leave. They're going to make a special assistant out of him. They want him out of the way. He is too much. He is starting to hurt too many people, like unions. He's not only hurting the racket guys, but others, antitrust. I think that he is going to leave. But the only reason he won't leave, which I heard before, you see, he wants Edgar Hoover out of that. End quote. So it's clear, as we've said, Bobby was not making friends, and it wasn't just the mafia that was upset with him, but also the unions, which were at that time largely controlled by Jimmy Hoffa and even his counterpart in the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover. 
on May 2nd, 1962, New York Cosa Nostra members Salvatore Sal Profaci, as we mentioned, the son of Joe Profaci of the Profaci Colombo Borgata, and Michelino Clemente, also known as Michael or Big Mike Clemente of the Genovese family, and a third man were discussing Bobby Kennedy. At one point, Clemente commented, quote, Clemente, Bob Kennedy won't stop today until he puts us all in jail all over the country. Until the commission meets and puts its foot down, things will be at a standstill. When we meet, we all got to shake hands and sit down and talk. And if there is any trouble with a particular regime, it's got to be kept secret. And only the heads are to know about it. Otherwise, some broad finds out and finally the newspapers. End quote. Later in the conversation, Clemente would state that things were not like they were years ago, when the commission would meet once a month and there were no cops around to spy on them. Today, he said, in order to have a meeting, you have to tell each one individually about the meeting without letting them know who else would be present or what the meeting was going to be about so that there would be no chance of information leaking out. It kind of sounds like the way things have to be today. Honestly, this sounds less like the Mafia in its golden age and more like the Mafia is forced to operate today, which is largely underground. That is the effect that the Kennedys and their crusade against the mob was indeed having. So, very, very effective, even though they were making tons of enemies. Going back to Chicago, though it's not a direct quote, I was still able to find an anecdotal story about a conversation in October 1963 a month before the assassination between Sam Giancana, Tony Accardo, and Butch Blasi. They discussed Robert Kennedy's not being available for a Columbus Day parade, but coming to Chicago on October 13th, forgive the pronunciation, for a Benai Barith affair. According to the trio, the Jews downtown were beaming, as they said. Later in the discussion, the subject changed to whether or not Bobby Kennedy played golf. Apparently, they knew that John Kennedy indeed did play golf, and one of the men then suggested that they put a bomb in his golf bag, to which they all, you know, sinisterly laughed. Along those same veins, and even closer to the assassination on October 31st, 1963, Stefano Magadino and Peter Magadino were recorded having a discussion about President Kennedy. Quote, Peter, he should drop dead. They should kill the whole family, the mother and father, too. When he talks, he talks like a mad dog. He says, my brother, the attorney general. Why, he never won a case. He never tried a case. End quote. Now, as is well known by this point, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas on November 22nd, 1963. What was clear was that the brutal, and I mean brutal, murder of the 35th president, which shocked the entire country, did little to change the feelings of members of the underworld around the country. We'll begin with a comment picked up from a man named Morris Schlitten, who was in fact a major numbers guy in New York City after he learned about the president's death. Quote, good. Too bad they didn't kill his brother Bobby, too. End quote. In Chicago on November 22nd, the day of the assassination, Sam Giancana and Chucky English met, and as you'd expect, their discussion turned to the assassination. Giancana would comment somewhat prophetically mere hours after the assassination that Bobby Kennedy would not have the power he previously had and that he would now be answerable to a person, not his brother, which turned out to be very true. Just three days later, the conversations among the outfit's members would again turn to the assassination with Chucky English saying the following, quote, I am not a hypocrite. I didn't like him before he died, and I still feel the same way. If he wanted to put me in jail, then fuck him, end quote. The conversation would soon turn to Kennedy's alleged shooter, Lee Harvey Oswald, with English and Giancana saying the following, quote, English. This 24-year-old kid was an anarchist. He was a Marxist communist. Giancana. He was a marksman who knew how to shoot. End quote. Now, up in upstate New York, just two days after the assassination, a conversation, again, 
was picked up between Stefano Magadino, Peter Magadino, Antonio Magadino, and a man named Sam Rangator, in which they actually seemed to wax patriotic while also warning about potential spies in their ranks. Stefano Magadino was recorded to have said the following, quote, It's a shame we've been embarrassed before the whole world by allowing the president to be killed in our own territory. You can be sure that the police spies will be watching carefully to see what we think and say about this. End quote. On November 26th, now just four days after the assassination, Stefano Magadino again, Peter Magadino and Sam Rangator, were again speculating about Jack Ruby and Lee Harvey Oswald. Fred Randasio, another Buffalo family member, entered and congratulated Rangator on the death of the president. Uh, there was laughing all around, and then Stefano Magadino cautioned the group. He said that the public would be watching their reaction, and they must not joke, and all agreed. Magadino went on to say that President Kennedy was one of the nation's greatest presidents and blamed the assassination on his brother, Bobby Kennedy. According to Magadino, RFK had pressed too many issues behind the scenes. Neither the president, nor Hoover, nor the FBI wished to bring up the discussions that had been brought out by the Valachi hearings. The attorney general had accomplished something, and so had pressed too many issues and too many people's buttons. He stepped on a lot of toes. Again, ironic that he was being recorded as he was warning about spies, but very surprising that anyone in the mob would express any level of what I'd deem as patriotism. Not that these guys weren't patriotic, but given the hatred for the Kennedys, it's kind of a, a weird juxtaposition that there was patriotism immediately after the assassination. And of course, there's also the juxtaposition that just a month earlier, Stefano and Peter Magadino were wishing the whole family dead. But there was an admission there that Kennedy's strategy had actually been effective, both in terms of the law enforcement results and in ruffling the feathers of important people, which ultimately resulted in the death of RFK's brother, John. Months after the assassination, important Cosa Nostra figures were still talking about it. And even 60 years later, we're still talking about it. So you can imagine only months after they were still talking about it. On February 2nd, 1964, Groundhog Day, Angelo Bruno, Charles Costello, Ben Galoob, Harry Zimmond, and a man named Tony were discussing the assassination where one of them let loose what was, as we've seen, a very common sentiment. Quote, it's too bad his brother Bobby was not in that car too. End quote. And along those same lines, I'll leave you with this comment on August 13th, 1964, from the man known as the Quiet Don, Russell Buffalino of Pennsylvania, who was complaining that someone was unable to do him a favor, but somehow made the connection to the Kennedy brothers. Quote, the Kennedys are responsible for all my troubles. They killed the good one. They should have killed the other little guy. End quote. So it's clear that they, the Mafia, had the means and the motive to commit the crime. But did they actually play a part in it? My personal opinion is that maybe they weren't the primary executioners, but we'd be pretty naive to believe that they played no part at all. And I'm just going to leave it like that. That being said, we may never actually know the truth until the government releases every single record, many of which are still classified to this day about the plot. Until then, I'll let you decide what you think. Leave me a comment below. I'm happy to discuss the conspiracy in the comments below. Let me know what you think about all these quotes. Okay, that's it for this episode. It will probably incite some controversy for sure, as I know there are a lot of strong opinions and curiosity when it comes to what really happened that day in Dallas and who was ultimately behind it. Whether you like the episode or not, let's have a discussion in the comments on YouTube. Also, I just wanted to say again that I appreciate the amazing amount of support you've given me as we are coming up on 7,000 subscribers. And by the time this episode's released, maybe we'll already be there on YouTube and also getting a lot of really good traction on the various audio platforms. Coming up next, I'll be going back to the Angelo Bruno story and finishing up part two of the Cerrito crime family. 
After those episodes, I plan to dive headfirst into the Castellamorese War, maybe do some movie breakdowns. I've been itching to get back into that. Uh, but the Castellamorese War series is likely to be incredibly epic uh, and probably a huge undertaking on my part. So I am looking forward to it, but it will be daunting. As I've said recently, I'm still looking to do more interviews to sprinkle in between my more documentary style content, but not just any interviews. I'm specifically looking for people who have stories of running up against the mob, either as a result of being in that life, but more likely people that have no affiliation with the life whatsoever. There are lots of people that are, that grew up in the neighborhood that you know, knew somebody who knew somebody. And to me, those are really interesting stories that deserve just as much attention as the, the, the common talking heads that you hear all over YouTube. If you think that that's you, uh, please email me at membersonlypodcastshow at gmail.com and we'll talk and we'll see if it's a fit. Also, before you go, please don't forget to subscribe so that you can continue to enjoy my content as it's released. And if you have any thoughts, like I said, please leave them in the comments on YouTube or write us a review on Apple. Lastly, feel free to check out our website, membersonlypodcast.com, where I post all the content and transcripts where I can from the episode. I'm still a relatively small channel and need all the help I can get in order to grow. Uh, it was another great episode, and I just want to say, until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut.